All right, welcome back to Farewell. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Molly White. Molly is a tech thinker, writer, policy analyst, has a great website called Web3 is going just great. Um, and really wanted to have her on today to talk about two areas of her expertise so we can sort of branch out to other stuff too, which we won Wikipedia and two kind of the evolution or maybe devolution is a better way to say it of, of Web3 because uh, it sort of had this moment and then never really went from there. So um, let, let's start on Wikipedia, which is it, it feels to me that it's one of these things kind of like the phone company, like everybody hates it in a way and yet everyone just sort of lives with it and accepts it and it's a fact of life. Like where do you think Wikipedia stands in the broader Internet kind of ethos? Well, uh, I mean, I like Wikipedia a lot more than I like my phone company. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I think Wikipedia has become sort of a, a part of the Internet that is, uh, you know, built in almost in the same way yeah, that Google right. is a part of the Internet. That's and kind of so, what I mean. yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And so it, it's almost like infrastructural at this point. Um, but, you know, I think it's kind of exciting that uh, a project like Wikipedia can become one of those uh, sort of structural parts of the internet because it is very different from a lot of the other incumbents. You know, it's not a Google, it's not extracting profits, you know, it's not pushing ads and things like that. So, you know, I find that really um, optimistic, but- um, Does their funding I mean, mainly- No, 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 it, it's interesting. Look, I think that um, the idea that you could have an independent resource that isn't solely protecting the interest of some giant, you know, monopoly is useful. That doesn't mean Wikipedia is even close to perfect by any way, shape, or form. No, absolutely but not. They is all of the money like just from individual contributors when you go on there and they say, please donate two dollars and seventy-five cents, or are there like big philanthropic backers to it? It's a, it's a mix of both. There are uh, individual donors and then uh, substantial, you know, grants and, and other sort of institutional donors as well. So when you when you look at these sort of alternative social media platforms that try to be like Twitter without all of the hatred or, or whatever it is, um, and they always seem to fail, right? Um, what lessons from Wikipedia would you tell them that to say, look, here, you may never be a, a billionaire by creating this thing, but here's how you could build a sustainable resource on the Internet? Well, um, I mean, I think that it really depends what you're going for. You know, mm -hmm. if you want to become Twitter, your motives are very different than if you want to become Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, and I think there are some of those alternative social networks that are more like Wikipedia and more like Twitter in some ways. You know, when I see, for example, Mastodon, I see right. a lot of things that resemble Wikipedia in some ways. Um, and, and those are sometimes things that make social networks less appealing to some people. You know, the, the, it's more technical, you know, it's more confusing for some users to use something like Mastodon. Um, and I think the same is true of something like Wikipedia compared to some of the more, you know, uh, the the projects on the internet that have more funding that go towards right. you know design and things like that totally totally um, yeah i was thinking of mastodon specifically and that like its vision sounds like a world that we should want to see actualized uh and an option for people who you know want to use social media but don't necessarily want to have to um submit to all of the problems of the existing platforms um and Wikipedia seems to be the one example of someone that they built something valuable enough to people that between individual contributions and, and philanthropic, like you said, 
there's enough interest to keep them going. It's part of what worked for them that they never tried to become, you know, like a unicorn and they were just sort of meant to be a public resource from the beginning. And if 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 you're a Mastodon or someone, do you kind of have to make a choice between we want to be a force for good and we want to be really rich? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, I think that there are very much opposing interests to some extent when yeah, it comes to deciding sure. if you want to be one or the other. Um, but I think there are companies that, ha- you know, are pro- for profit and have also done good things. I think there are also nonprofits that have done bad things, um, you know, and so I think that uh, the two are, are not mutually exclusive, but it is challenging, I think, to balance those competing interests. Um, but, you know, I think with Mastodon and, and, and projects like that, one of the interesting things is that it is so open that a lot of people can take it in a lot of different directions. And so there are projects that are built on Mastodon that are for profit, um, whereas, you know, other portions of the ecosystem remain fairly, uh, you know, nonprofit and, and mission focused. And is is blockchain, and we'll get into Web3 more later, but is, is that a good analogy in that there's sort of an underlying tool that could be used by a variety of different entities for a variety of different purposes? And some could be for profit, some could be not for profit, some might be total scams, some might actually have societal value. Um, I mean, is is that the same kind of thing? Or do you think that blockchain is sort of too specific and technical to ever be of great utility to in a way that, that Wikipedia can be? Well, I think I think there's sort of two different questions there. I think that blockchains are you know, the, the underlying theory is it's, you know, sort of an infrastructural thing. It's right. like saying a database or right. something like right. that. Um, and so, you know, blockchains can become many different things and can resemble many different things. And, you know, we've seen variations on the theme, I think, that have gone in a lot of different directions. Um, I As for the sort of utility of it, you know, I don't... I. It is not a particularly promising technology, in my opinion, as far as um, accomplishing a lot of the things that people set out to do with blockchains. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as far as the comparisons to Wikipedia, I mean, I think that it's it's hard to sort of draw a comparison between a blockchain and Wikipedia versus, you know, a specific blockchain project. It's sort of like trying to compare, you know, the internet protocol to Wikipedia because right. it is sort of on a different level of uh, implementation. Would, would you describe blockchain as a solution in search of a problem? Yes, generally I would. I mean, I think I think there are very specific things that blockchains do, um, but you know, as far as trying to find a societally useful and and to some extent. Um, profitable implementation of blockchains people have i think really struggled with that so far and yeah. so you know a lot of the uh implementations we're seeing these days and in the past couple of years have been people sort of gluing a blockchain to something that probably doesn't really need it and, yeah yeah and i so- um one of the things we've done my foundation is is mobile voting and we just finished building our own mobile voting tech and the assumption was that it was going to be on a blockchain and then once we went through the whole process we're like there's actually no reason for it to be on the blockchain. Right. We didn't didn't use blockchain. Um, Wikipedia, uh, you're truly an expert here. You've been on the arbitration committee three different times. You've written a ton of entries. How'd you get into this? <laughs> I was actually a kid when I started editing Wikipedia. Um, 
you know, I was stumbling around on the internet, I guess, as kids do, and discovered that anyone could edit it. Um, and I have sort of a weird brain that is drawn to things like that. And so uh, decided to start playing around with it, found it pretty interesting. Um, and then, you know, I sort of started editing it for a little bit, gave it up for a little bit, and then came back to it in uh, probably when I was like a high schooler and have been pretty active ever since. Um, you know, it's just something that really uh, interests me and, and keeps me interested. What, what makes a good Wikipedia entry? <laughs> I think a lot of things go into it, but, you know, there are a bunch of sort of core principles of Wikipedia, which include, you know, being verifiable and reliably sourced, uh, being written in a neutral, you know, from a neutral point of view, um, you know, presenting a, an overall uh, high quality overview of a topic, you know, at sort of the encyclopedia level things like that. And it feels to me like there's a weird, maybe it's a cognitive dissonance. I just noticed among myself that if, if I look at my Wikipedia page, I see all kinds of inaccuracies and things that I would say <laughs> are not really true. But then, you know, before I walk into a meeting with someone, if they have a Wikipedia page, I just look at it and I don't look at it critically. I'm just like absorbing a little bit of information to walk into the meeting. Um, is that kind of a normal thing where it's like one of those, like how everyone hates Congress but loves their congressman or, or whatever it is where like everyone hates their own Wikipedia page but sort of overall just sort of that gets back to the phone company point just sort of accepts us as this resource yeah I, I'm blanking on the name of it but there's there's a there's a word for it where you know when you're an expert on something you see all sorts of flaws in writing about that oh yeah but when, right what is that Hugo do you know that, that's not Dunning-Kruger that's that's when you think you know too much it's so funny I thought it was Dunning-Kruger oh so, is it yeah. no no I don't think it's, it is Molly but, is that what you thought it was or no no it's no. something that's Hill I, I forget what it is but anyway I want to back Molly up for one second though because sure. she said she started sort of playing around with it when she was a kid so could you go back to that sort of time and place how old were you and what was the first one you edited because I want to get a sense of like how like a kid thinks like oh turtles I'm gonna like rewrite the entry on turtles or whatever it was yeah, um, I was, I think, around 13 years old, and I think the first article I ever edited was about unicycles, which is something I was also That's a good kind answer. Of a good answer. Were you also time. riding unicycles at the time or just editing? I was, actually. <laughs> I, Wait, those yeah. like really tall unicycles or just like a little regular unicycle? Just like a normal unicycle. <laughs> I Yeah, weird hobbies are something I've sort of always been... Okay, so you go and you look at the entry of unicycles and you think like, wow, they just don't have this right. I got to add some really good stuff here. Like what happened? I thought it was missing some information. And so I went and added some. It was not a particularly good edit at the time because I didn't know how Wikipedia worked or what you needed to do. Does um, any of your unicycle work live on or has it all been rewritten and re-edited? I'm pretty sure it's all been rewritten by now. It, uh, it was like, like I said, it was like 15 plus years ago. Unicycle. Are there like... In the Wikipedia community that you're in, are there like a hall of fame of entries that are really great? And people are like, wow, the, uh, you know, the fire hydrant Wikipedia page is incredible, legendary. Is there stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, actually, yes, there, there are. They're called featured articles. And if you ever go to Wikipedia's main page, just like wikipedia.org, you'll see there's often like an one article that's like the article of the day. And those are featured articles. And so sometimes they're about things that are just like, topically interesting they, they'll try to time them if there's like a 
something going on, but they also are some of the like best of the best of Wikipedia's content and go through a pretty um, thorough review process before they get put there. And do you have a personal favorite? Like one, I mean, fire hydrants, definitely gonna be fire hydrants. Yeah. That was a good, a good one, Bradley. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I have like a, an all time favorite, but there are a bunch of Wikipedia articles that I just think are really fun. T- tell us one, just what's a great um, one. Uh, well, it's more, for me, it's often about things I didn't know about or didn't know existed. So, for example, I learned about the um, <laughs> the pickle lifter, which is like the little uh, if you've ever gotten a jar of pickles, sometimes they have like a little platform in it with like a handle on it that you can use to lift the pickles huh. to the top. I've never uh, seen and I, I'd, I'd never encountered. I yeah, finally, I finally encountered one when I was. In, I think I was at a Wikipedia conference actually, and I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> it's like a pickle elevator, and so I think I googled like pickle elevator and discovered that a pickle lifter. Is and was there an lifter. entry, or did you write the entry? Yeah, no, there was an entry. No, it's she's saying short. it's one of her favorites, right? She could, but she why didn't write her own well, entry? Why, why couldn't she? She's, I'm sure. I'm sure I mean, you could, have. Yeah. You've written some featured articles. Um, the the. Recently, you got a, you know, a little bit of attention for putting together a really great video that explained how Wikipedia works in response to some of Bill Ackman's accusations against Wikipedia in terms of what they said about his wife. What, what, what did Ackman get wrong and what are generally the misconceptions that people have? Yeah, well, so I don't think Ackman was upset at anything that Wikipedia said about his wife, at least as far as I know, but um, he was... He was responding to allegations that his wife had plagiarized from Wikipedia and was making some claims as though that's like not even possible, Um, as though, you know, Wikipedia content can't be plagiarized or, you know, there is no such thing, um, which is really just not accurate. You know, Wikipedia content is copyrighted. It is, you know, it's released under a a very um, open and free license, but it still has requirements that you, you know, attribute um, any text that you copy from Wikipedia and things like that. And so I was really just responding to some of the, you know, misconceptions that I think he was adding to um, sort of in an attempt to defend his wife and, you know, the allegations against her. And those are kind of representative, do you think, of like, when you talk to like a Wikipedia newbie, is that kind of what they think? Oh, it's just like something that's out there. Anybody can use it for whatever they want. It's just sort of like like water coming in through the tap. <laughs> it depends. But I think I think there are a lot of really common misconceptions about Wikipedia. And it is common to, to run across people who think that there is no copyright or that it's all public domain or something like that, which is... Um, you know, closer to the truth than than a lot of resources that are out there, but is still not quite accurate. I want to ask one more question, yeah. a little bit specifically about about sort of what Bradley was talking about, like his own Wikipedia page. There are inaccuracies that he sees, kind of like kind of being reasserted there. He he has somebody looking out for it to make sure that doesn't happen. It still happens. Yeah. Um, so how does that actually work? So I, I guess I don't understand the 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 basic process, and maybe you can just explain it really quickly, like. Like if, if I go on and edit a page um, and I, let's say, I, not even maliciously, but I get something wrong and there's something I put up there, what prevents that from like, or how is it supposed to be prevented from seeing the light of day, even for a, a, a few minutes before someone corrects it or however it works? How does that process, how is that supposed to work? Well, it's tough because um, there is sort of no formal review process on Wikipedia articles. And so we really rely on other editors you know, checking what people are adding or correcting any inaccuracies that they come across. 
Um, which means that sometimes stuff does slip through because, you know, not everyone is closely watching every given article. Um, but generally speaking, you know, we expect that any edit to the encyclopedia would have a reliable source, you know, associated with it that would support whatever claim is being made. And so, you know, there are people who look out for new edits to Wikipedia that are missing reliable sources or that are using sources that are not generally considered reliable. Um, and those types of folks are, are sort of the front lines against inaccuracies like that. So, um, so it really is like things can, can live on uh, if, especially if you're on a less like uh, focused on or, or a less scrutinized area, you could you could you could get a lot of like really crazy shit on there if you wanted to. Um, I mean, I, I would say that the the more out there it is, the more likely it is to be flagged by some of the sort of automated and semi-automated processes that we have that revert vandalism and things like that. Mm -hmm. So if you're adding stuff that's just completely, you know crazy, then it will usually get reverted pretty quickly. But, you know, as far as, you know, plausible inaccuracies, there are, those are the things that sometimes do slip through, and slip through the cracks so like, a little for bit like, more. I don't know, Donald Trump or Barack Obama's Wikipedia page, are there just like people that hate them on either side, just endlessly trying to edit the page and, and, and put crazy shit in there? Like, how do you prevent... I like you use my term, crazy shit. You well, no, because like, it's, it's funny, because on one hand, and this is probably part of what you like about it, Wikipedia sort of like encompasses in many ways the best and the worst of the internet at the same time, right? Which is, it enables this community, it's able to be self-sustaining it without that much of a budget because people do just choose to use community editing. At the same time, there is so much hatred and so much polarization online as well that it's it seems like it has to be vulnerable to that in some way too yeah so there are definitely some articles where it can't just be a free-for-all um and i would say both the donald trump barack obama you know any major politician articles tend to fall into that umbrella where there are actually restrictions that are placed on the articles by the community that say that you you know if you're just a random person who's never edited wikipedia before you can't just go make an edit to the live version of Donald Trump's Wikipedia article. You have to have a, a sort of a baseline level of experience and I guess reputation in the community before mm -hmm. you can do that. Um, and that really helps with some of the really contentious articles or the really high profile articles. Um, can I, we might want to move on to web three in a second, but yeah, let me sure. ask you like a, a big question just about kind of where Wikipedia is in its own history. Is it, you know, you've, you've been involved for 15 years. I think you said, um, in that time, are we, is it, is it sort of in a constant state of improvement? Is that how you see it? Is it, is it kind of like always getting better? Are there kind of threats emerging to it that are new? Like, where would you, how would you characterize like the moment it's in right now? I think, yes, to both. I think it is always getting better. Um, it is noticeably better than it was when I was first editing, you know, things have really uh, improved as far as the coverage and the quality of a lot of the articles. Um, but there are also always sort of threats to Wikipedia around, you know, different groups trying to influence the content, uh, misinformation campaigns, um, you know, attempts to damage Wikipedia's reputation itself and, and things like that, uh, that, you know, I think will always be there as far as major internet projects, but, you know, Wikipedia is not immune from those types of threats. How much does the Section 230 protection matter to Wikipedia? Um, 
like generally speaking, I'm a very big proponent for eliminating Section 230 and, and making the companies liable for pushing really toxic content on people, especially kids. Um, mm-hmm. it, let's say Section 230 did go away. Is Wikipedia an inadvertent casualty of that or is it not really at major risk? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and so it's hard for me to speak too confidently on these things. But my understanding is that Section 230 is really important for Wikipedia. Um, And a lot of people who talk about, you know, limiting Section 230 will often picture, you know, the big tech companies, for example, as sort of the targets of that. But I think a lot of people forget that there are companies like you know, or projects like Wikipedia out there that would also be affected by those types of things. Um, you know, there, there are already uh, a lot of, you know, Wikipedia content is subject to a lot of disputes and there are constant sort of legal threats over Wikipedia content and things like that. And I think it would be really challenging for the Wikimedia Foundation to be considered, you know, liable as a whole for all of the content that it's many, many, many editors are creating and writing. Yeah. So flipping over to web three, like t- kind of feels to me as, as on the, on the venture side of this stuff, like kind of second half of 21 through a lot of 22, there was this craze in venture where like everybody had to invest in web three and that was the next big thing. Um, which usually, by the way, I've, I've now been in this long enough to learn that whenever that's the case, the, the your only reaction, we get the fuck away from it as far as you can, <laughs> as fast as you can. Uh, and I think other than one relatively small investment, we managed to, to do that. Um, so I guess the first part is what, what sparked that moment? Like, why did that happen? I think a lot of things went into it, but um, crypto prices were really high at the time. uh, And when there's money, there's interest and people wanted to make a story about it. Um, I think, you know, the pandemic really contributed to it, both in terms of the economic landscape, but also people were really bored and things like NFTs were, you know, around to capture people's interests. You know, the gambling side of it and sort of the day trading side of it. Uh, resembled some other crazes that we saw, you know, with Robin Hood and sort of the meme stocks and things like that. And so it jived well with that. Um, and I think, you know, the venture capital and, and tech industry is always looking for the next big thing and they they wanted something and, you know, people working in the blockchain space and, and trying to promote cryptocurrencies were able to make a convincing story about Web3 that that really tied into a lot of the narratives around today's web, you know, that it's being captured by big tech, that you don't truly own your own content, you know, that everyone is shoving ads down your throat and maybe yep. there's an alternative, that type of thing. Uh, you know, they were able to paint a sort of uh, attractive picture around that, I think. Mm. So, like, Metaverse was another phrase that we heard a lot for <laughs> yeah. a year and a half or something like that. I don't think anyone has I've literally heard that phrase in the, in, in the last six months. Um, and where do you think it goes? Like, for like on one hand, it all kind of makes sense that we would want to, you know, spend time in this enhanced, better reality and take advantage of all the things that has to offer. But then, like, for example, like my I, I bought my son one of those like um, – What's the one? Uh, Oculus, you know, like super advanced head, you know, headsets, and like he doesn't fucking use it. Like it's really used- good for ping pong. Have you tried ping pong? No, really good. But we have a ping pong table. I know, but if you don't, if you're not near the table, um, but but uh, yeah, but he was 14, right? He should be the perfect sort of use case here, and he's not. Yeah. Um, where do you think Metaverse ends up? 
Well, I think there are a lot of different sort of definitions of the metaverse. And so when you say metaverse, you know, some people are picturing just virtual reality, for example, which is something that, you know, has been used in industries for years now. You know, there's also gaming use cases and things like that. And I think that there are, you know, use cases for virtual reality that will continue, although I do wonder to some extent how widespread of an appeal they will be sort of to a consumer People were talking about, you know, going to work in the metaverse and, you know, all of your social events would be in the metaverse, going to concerts in the metaverse, um, having this whole economy in the metaverse where you would, you know, turn your sort of whole online life into this very transactional, uh, you know, buyer-seller relationship um, and the degree to which they're willing to have a big headset strapped onto their head, you know, 24-7. So... You know, I think that was something that just was not well suited to the place and time. Um, You know, it was, I think, something that people were really trying to push because of the pandemic and the difficulties of going to the office and things like that. But, um, you know, it was, I think, maybe something that was more of a passing fad. And then let me let me throw a totally unfounded theory that the pandemic was both inherently good and bad for the metaverse and virtual reality and Web3 and that it was good because, like you said, people were bored and they needed things to do. So they started day trading crypto and buying NFTs and things like that. But we also learned that we really, uh, because of the masks, don't like having shit attached to our face. Um, and even though... <laughs> I like that theory. I haven't yeah, heard that before. And like, I mean, I hate, you know, I'm not like one of these mask deniers, but I didn't like, I never liked for a second wearing one. And it kind of makes me even less likely to wear a headset because I just don't like stuff on my face that doesn't have to be there. Um, and any any thoughts on that ridiculous thesis either way? <laughs> I mean, I think people probably would have realized they don't like having stuff on their face with or without. <laughs> Fair enough, without a yeah. pandemic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, headsets are just uncomfortable and it's weird to... I think it's it's just inherently weird to be sitting in a space and not being able to see your surroundings. You know, I think that's partly why, like, Apple, for example, has tried to create this sort of semi-transparent headsets and things because it's just really, it feels really alien to not be able to see what's around you, even if it's just, you know, your living room. Uh, and and so, yeah, I think, I think that's a big, I think the hardware is a big challenge of, you know, metaverse and, you know, virtual reality more broadly is that, you know, it's heavy, it's clunky, it isn't comfortable. Uh, and, you know, until there can be some strides in that, you know, I think having a consumer uh, level brand there is just challenging, you know, plus there's the motion sickness aspect of it and, you know, the that, that side of things as well. Um, so what you have this great website called Web3 is going just great. Um, which is obviously a, a skeptical website about Web3. What what led you to create it? And then like, what's the sort of motivating thesis behind it? So yeah, there was this point where the media wasn't taking a critical eye towards crypto, but I was seeing a lot of uh, sort of, uh, you know, stories of people losing a lot of money, getting hacked, getting scammed, uh, falling for the hype around a crypto project and then losing all their money. And it didn't feel like anyone was really capturing that. And so, you know, because I didn't know what else to do, I just sort of started writing about it and just keeping track of all those instances of things going really, really wrong. Um, not expecting it to take off in the way that it did. 
Um, but you know, it turned out that people were, I think, kind of looking for that side of the story. And now that, as you say, that the sort of um, you know the, the 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 mainstream media has grown more skeptical, how have you sort of adapted to that change? I mean, I've been glad to see that change. Uh, I think that any tech hype really needs that critical perspective, and when it's missing, a lot of harm can happen. Uh, so I've been grateful to see people taking a more skeptical look at things, but I'm always you know worried about you know, what's next? What's the next story that is going to be capturing media attention and and sort of the public consciousness? And I'm also always a little cautious of, you know, when these things fade a little bit. Um, You know, crypto has become less popular recently. The headlines are not constantly talking about board apes and, you know, things like that. Um, And, that is sort of the time when crypto tries to rebrand and come up with a new story for itself as it has been doing for the last decade plus. So what's um, the story right now? What's the story that crypto has come up with it's, for itself right now? How would you how would you characterize it? Uh, I think right now the big story is that all the bad actors are being cleansed from the industry. You know, FTX collapsed. Uh, there's been high profile legal action against a bunch of different companies. A bunch of companies went bankrupt. Um, and so I think now people are saying it's, you know, crypto is legitimate now. You know, the Bitcoin ETFs were just approved, which means that big funds, you know, BlackRock and and folks like that are getting involved. And so people are saying, okay, now you can come and buy crypto because it's safe and all the problems are fixed, which is absolutely not the case, but is the story that people are trying to tell right now. So on AI, there's this obviously very, very broad range of skepticism and and optimism, um, or both at the same time, you know, at least in this super incipient stage that we're at today. Like, what's your underlying take on it? I think that AI has broadly more potential than blockchains do. Um, You know, like I said earlier, blockchains are built for one very specific thing. And there isn't, you know, as much as people try to tack on different use cases and, and build new products with them you know, they, they are generally not actually that useful for a lot of things that people are trying to do. Um, with artificial intelligence, you know, we use artificial intelligence products every day, um, often without even really realizing it. Right. And, you know, the various versions of that technology have been being used for years and years now, and I think will continue to be. So I think there is more there there with uh with ai but i think that also the hype and this sort of overblown excitement and rush of you know venture capital money and things like that into this space it shares a lot of parallels to what we saw with crypto in the sort of 2020 2021 time period so what would your sort of cautionary tale or advice be to the venture community founders sort of enthusiasts i would really urge people to look into what is actually possible and happening with the technology today and try to separate that from the stories about what this technology might one day achieve. Um, You know, that was what was happening in the crypto world where people would be talking about, well, one day 
once we solve a couple of problems, you know, blockchains are going to fix everything that's wrong with the internet and it will enable, you know, a totally new financial system outside of what people use today and, and so on and so forth. And that became very confused with conversations about what people are actually doing with blockchains today and the capabilities of the technology that people have. And I think that same thing is happening with artificial intelligence, where people are talking about, you know, these human-like artificial intelligence assistants that will be doing all sorts of things. And, oh, one day AI will cure cancer and, you know, all this different stuff. Um, and that also, you know, that gets very confused with conversations about the technology that we have today, which is, you know, these large language models, for example, that are not thinking or creating in any real sense, but are, you know, sort of probabilistically outputting text based on what they've been trained, you know. And so trying to separate the the hype from the reality is really crucial when it comes to looking at these different projects. Yeah. Um, last topic, which is you live in Boston, you work in Boston. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Of course, I think that New York City is the center of the universe. Um, I think people in San Francisco and Silicon Valley still think that they're the center of the tech universe. How would you kind of compare the Boston tech scene and what do you like about it and what could be better? Uh, the Boston tech scene is pretty small, I think, compared to the other places that you've listed. So, you know, you'll run into people and they've all worked at the same companies that you have or, you know, they they have similar backgrounds, um, which is, you know, it's good and bad. You, It's nice to know everyone, but in the same sense, you know, it feels like a very small and insular place. Um, but, you know, I think I also think that Boston doesn't have too many, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't think it's San Francisco. It doesn't think it's New York, which is nice. You know, people don't get uh, completely lost in a little more self, you know, whatever it is that they're yeah. building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, 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 that could definitely be nice in a way. Cool. Molly, how do people, I mean, website, social, what's the best way for people to follow you from here? Um, yeah. So you can find me at my website, mollywhite.net. I'm also on social media, you know, Twitter, stuff like that. Molly0xffff. Um, and if you go to my website, it has links to all my other stuff. Cool. All right. Well, Molly, thank you for joining us. Definitely encourage everyone to check out Molly's website and her writing and thinking. It's really interesting stuff. And I hope you come back sometime. Thanks for having me. Cool. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.